Jesus doesn't look at the church and say, what an unholy group of people undeserving of my love. He says, I died so that I would see her as holy and pure and without blemish. And in my holiness, that's what she is. I wonder what would happen if we imagined the ultimate reality is that one day, First John says, we will see him as he is. And we don't know all that that means, but we know that we shall be like him, which means that one day you and I will be funnels, vessels, mirrors of God's glory without spot or wrinkle and everything about us, everything about us will announce God wins. That's what it means to be glorified. You're listening to Life on the West Side. Here's Nathan Guy. Well, good evening, everyone. I'd like you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We are ending a series tonight. Uh, We've been looking at a series called This Present Strength. The idea is, what does it mean to have access to God's Spirit? We talked about how he lives within you. He is a power at work within you. Talked about how he will empower you. And tonight, I want to look at what it means, the end goal, for him to cause us to be glorified. Glorified. We've been looking at Romans 8 indirectly. Uh, I've mentioned it in every lesson not always directly in order, but I just realized that every time we talk about the Spirit, we end up talking about Romans 8. We've talked about the first several verses. We mentioned the end of it, and we mentioned near the end of it last week. But there's a section right in the middle that I haven't addressed that fits with this theme. And it's one of the most difficult passages in all of the New Testament. I want you to know that right off the bat. I also want you to know my goal is not to use a a big word, exegete this passage, meaning we're not going to go word by word and look at all the options, that kind of thing. Rather, I want it to be a launching pad for this ultimate point that I want to get at. And that is that God, through his spirit, wants us ultimately on the day of Christ to be like him so that we become vessels, funnels, mirrors of God's glory, that he sees us that way now, and that should affect how we look at one another and how we think about ourselves. I am convinced whenever I watch uh, Lord of the Rings movies or I read a C.S. Lewis book, I'm convinced that one of the big problems in our world is that we're just not creative enough. I mean, some of these geniuses, the stuff they come up with is just amazing. And then they'll describe something and I'll think, I've never thought of it that way. That's so much bigger and better than the image I would have had in my head. I believe one thing Paul's trying to do here in the middle of Romans 8 is to remind us that when we're talking about the future, what it will look like when God is glorified in all of his glory, whatever image comes to your mind, it's not big enough. So he uses bigger than life language. And good Christians sometimes disagree on, is this metaphor? Is this literal? Is it a mixture of metaphor and literal? Is it literally metaphor? Is it partially what you can picture and partially what you can't? 
And there's reasons why Christians disagree about this stuff. I want to bypass most of that and say at the end of looking at this discussion, what I hope we'll be thinking about is how does this language help us obey the two greatest commandments along with the third that's packaged in, which is to love God with all of our heart, to love our neighbor, and to love ourselves. Here's the passage. We're going to start in verse uh, 15. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it's that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If, in fact, we suffer with him so that we may also be, and here's our key word, glorified with him. I consider that the sufferings of this present age or time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Everybody got that? No questions, right? Uh, Steve Jones says he'll answer any questions you have on this topic. Let's back up a little bit. The Spirit is your down payment. That's Ephesians 1 and verse 13. The Spirit is your down payment. Now, when I hear the word down payment, my first thought is, you know, like buying a car or buying a house. And so that kind of uh, is your seed money. But it, it's stronger than that. The Greek word is arabon. And if you're in modern Greece, arabon is actually the word for an engagement ring. So it's your present truth. It's a present sign of what's going to be true in the future. That's what down payment is. Ephesians 1 says the Holy Spirit is your down payment. It's a sign in the present of what's going to be true in the future. Another way of saying it is Ephesians 1 verse 14. The Spirit is the guarantee of your inheritance. Okay? When I think of inheritance, I think about, you know, if a parent or grandparent passes and they leave you a sizable fortune. But he's not just talking in general. He has an Old Testament picture in mind. He's thinking about the Exodus story. God said, I'm going to pull you out of Egypt and I'm going to lead you to the promised land. And the promised land is where I am going to be. And you're going to get all the good things. And the sign that I am going to make this happen for the next 40 years as you're traveling through the wilderness is going to be my presence. Pillar of fire by night, cloud by day. And it's a sign. Trust me in this. I've got a future for you, and it's going to be great. So 
It's a sign that one day this is going to come true. You better believe it. It's already true in God's mind, but you're going to realize it later. Okay. So if the spirit is our down payment of our inheritance, a present sign of what's going to be true in the future, that tells us that we're living with a foot in two worlds. Paul uh, uses this language. He talks about the present evil age, and he talks about the age to come. Now that by itself, okay, I can get my head around that. There's the present evil age. Everything's bad. And there's the age to come. Everything's going to be good. But then Paul just messes everything up and says, Christians, guess which one you're in? Yes. You've got one foot in the present evil age, and you've got one foot in the age to come. So Paul uses this weird language and says, using past tense, God has already seated us with him in the heavenly places. And you're looking around, you're thinking, well, it doesn't look like I'm sitting in a throne on the right hand of God. It looks like I'm in the present evil age. And then he also talks about how you, we have these things that war against the soul. Why? Because we're part of us is still dealing with the present evil age. And yet in God's sight, he calls us to think of ourselves as holy and righteous. Why? Because in God's sight, he already sees us after the finish line. The spirit, the spirit is the present sign that one day we're going to experience what God sees now when he looks at us, that we're holy and perfect and innocent and pure and reigning with Christ. He calls us that now. And he says, I'm going to give you the spirit as a sign so you'll know one day you will fully see what I see when I look at you. Okay, all that's important background. So expect something different Expect something better when you leave the present evil age and you enter the age to come. But on the other hand, expect there to be some continuity because it's the real you. It's the you, you that I want to save. So there's three images that are bigger than life language that I don't have a lot of time to kind of deal with. I just want to lay them out for you, which is meant to tell you that if the present is the sign of the future, then expect there to be similarity and difference when we go into the new age. Here's the first illustration, the resurrection of our bodies. Look back in Romans 8, and let's look, for example, at verse uh, 23. He says, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit Grown inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. I want you to notice the word of. It doesn't say the redemption from our bodies. You might think that my body is a sign of the present evil age. It's not something that works very good all the time. It's something that starts to get old and there's things about it I don't like. But one day he'll free the real me from this body. That's not what this says. The language of being of the redemption of our body is the first illustration where God's trying to get you to think bigger than just escaping. But a totality in which God gets his way. And everything he makes is better. 
Another passage that speaks to this, Romans 8 and verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit that dwells in you. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul argues for 58 verses about the resurrection of the body. The earliest Christians, they actually used a different word. If you take a look at the second and third centuries, they don't even use the word soma, body. They use the word flesh, resurrection of the flesh. And it's interesting that when Paul tries to talk about how when Christ comes back, expect him to redeem you, you. He goes above and beyond with this language in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23. Instead of saying, I hope that you'll be complete when the Lord comes, he names all the parts of you. He said, I pray that you'll be complete when the Lord comes. All your soul, your spirit, and your body. Okay, so the first illustration. Is there a part of you that you don't like? There's a true story. Um, I, I, I think it was in a Glamour magazine. I didn't read this. Uh, I heard about this. But according to the story, uh, Cindy Crawford, at the height of her modeling fame, the height of her fame, was interviewed, and she said she's horrified by her left hand. You know that if your claim to fame is physical beauty, any imperfection stands out to you. Huge. Horrified by her left hand. Is there any part of you that you don't like? I think this first illustration is meant to make you think not, well, maybe one day God will get rid of all the things I don't like about myself. But to rather to think, what would it look like if God transformed everything about me so that I saw it as beautiful as he sees it as beautiful? What if every part of me was as beautiful as God sees as beautiful? And what if everything, including those parts of me that I don't think are very interesting or very good or very lovely, what if everything about me was redeemed and used for God's glory? I think that's one thing he's trying to get us to think about. The second example is the freeing of creation. Okay, this is verses 18 through 23. He actually says... The creation itself is going to be set free from its bondage to decay. What in the world does that mean? Well, there's at least five options out there. I mean, one view is that creation there is a large metaphor for Christians, you know, part of the creation. The problem with that is that a little bit later, he says, not only the creation, but we ourselves. Well, it sounds like the we ourselves would be the believers. Well, maybe he means humans, humans and then the Christians, you know, like human, non-Christians and Christians. Well, but then you'd have to think he's saying that non-Christians are going to be freed from their bodies to decay, which may create some problems later in, in the Bible. So that one doesn't seem to work. Basically, you end up thinking that what makes the most sense is he's talking about creation, creation, the the world. But then you ask the question, okay, is that a metaphor for something or is that literal? Well, Christians disagree about this. And that's not the point I want to get at right now. My point is this. Instead of saying this no good, terrible world and this no good, terrible thing in God's world that I don't like, maybe he'll get rid of that. What if our vision of God, our creative vision of the future is such that what if everything would ended up being whatever God wanted it to be? 
What if God ends up winning so big, he doesn't lose anything? So what if God wins so completely, he doesn't lose, but restores what's lost and is now found? Okay, the third illustration in the Bible that speaks to this is the language, the, the second word we use for heaven. The word heaven is used throughout the New Testament, but you know there's another phrase the Bible writers like to use. And that phrase is the new heavens and the new earth. You'll hear that at least three times in the New Testament. Paul uh, Peter says, God's ushering in a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. Well, some say that's a metaphor meaning new surroundings. Like if you say, I've got a new he- I got a new roof, I got new new floors, but you're not you don't actually have a roof or floors, you're living in a in a cabin with no roof or something. You know, it's a metaphor for that. Maybe that's it. Or maybe he's saying not this heavens and earth, and the word new doesn't mean renewed, it means new. And then another group will say that it means that God's going to take what he made and he's going to renew it, refine it. My point in this, looking for this big picture, is that instead of always speaking of escape, what if, you know, a remnant is able to get out of this troubled world and then uh, God loses it? What if the language, not so much of us escaping, as is the language of God returning? Now, this is the language that made a lot of sense to Israel in the Old Testament. Remember how God, God's people always had to leave their homeland. They kept getting taken into captivity. And the big good news was to return. Return home, return home, return home. So if you're Israelites and you hear the language of return, that sounds good. If you're a Greek, the language of return also sounds good because the Romans, I said Greek, I'm sorry, if you're Roman, the Romans would conquer a known area. Greeks did this too. The Romans would conquer a known area, and they had a really smart idea. If there was a city with a lot of money and power and and people that could fight for them, they didn't destroy everybody. It's a waste. They just gave them some things that make them feel even better than they did before. And now you've got all this money and all this power and all these people serving you. So if you're a place like Philippi or Colossae, you may have never been to Rome, but you're granted Roman citizenship as if you're Roman. And if you're in trouble, you just get up the big red phone or the big bat symbol, only it wasn't a picture of a bat, it was a picture of Nero, and you put it up in the sky, then Caesar would come from Rome and come to your city and take care of you just as if, just as if you were Rome itself. And that language, that imagery is in the background when Paul, who's very creative, is trying to describe something that may be bigger than we have language for And you have this language of Jesus's return. You see that several times. Jesus's return, his second coming. And in that language, you have this language of him setting things right. So, for example, in Revelation chapter 21, the text says, I saw heaven opened and I saw the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven like a bride adorned for her husband. And then the voice says, now the dwelling of God is with man. You're supposed to get the image of Genesis. Remember how God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day? That language of God's perfection. God makes something, it's all good, and he walks among them. Well, I can't help but see Genesis language here in Romans 8. When was the creation subjected to futility? Well, remember the Genesis story? Man is in trouble, so he blames the woman. Woman's in trouble, she blames the snake. So what does God do? 
God curses the snake, then he curses the woman, and it's very interesting. When he gets to Adam, he doesn't curse Adam. What does he do? He curses the ground. He curses the ground. And so the language of everything in creation is now struggling because of you is meant to make you feel really guilty. But this passage also says creation is subjected to futility and decay, but even it's going to see freedom of the glory of the children of God. In other words, this language is one day when we talk about glorified, whatever that's going to look like with the video camera, which I don't know, I want you to picture God winning so big he doesn't lose anything. He gets what he started with. I wonder if that is a hopeful picture for how we look at the world and how we think about our mission in the world. When you see a really dark place, if your first instinct is God can't possibly do anything with that, what if it changes to, I wonder what it would look like for that to be redeemed. If there's a certain dark place in your heart and you think, well, that's one room I'm just going to cut off from God. He can have the rest. What if God says, no, I want that too. In Ephesians chapter five, Paul is talking about husbands and wives. And he says, husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why does he die for the church? Why does he put the needs of the church over his own interests? Remember, he didn't even want to go to the cross. He says, if, if there's any other way, let it happen. But not my will, yours be done. He put the needs of you and me over his own interests in that moment. And why did he do it? Ephesians 5 says he did it to make her holy and to present her as a bride without blemish. I remember wise words one time when I attended a marriage seminar that said, never make fun of your wife's gray hair because you gave it to her. Hmm. Jesus doesn't look at the church and say, what an unholy group of people undeserving of my love. He says, I died so that I would see her as holy and pure and without blemish. And in my holiness, that's what she is. I wonder what would happen if we imagined the ultimate reality is that one day, First John says, we will see him as he is. And we don't know all that that means, but we know that we shall be like him, which means that one day you and I will be funnels Vessels, mirrors of God's glory without spot or wrinkle and everything about us, everything about us will announce God wins. That's what it means to be glorified. So in Acts chapter three, in verse 13, the Bible says when God was raised from the dead, God glorified him. That's got to mean that Jesus in the resurrection is able to fully reveal his godness. In 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 10, it says when the Lord comes back, he's going to be glorified in his holy people. And that's got to mean that somehow in us, 
God's great glory is going to be seen. And now, back to Romans 8 and verse 30. Here's the kicker. The one that's supposed to give us encouragement with all these images of bigger than life language of God getting it all. God winning big time. God restoring, God fixing, God declaring everything to be good. Here is what he says. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. Notice the past tense. And those he justified, he's already glorified. In God's sight, the game is won. You are on the throne next door to him, seated with Christ. You are without blemish and you reveal the glory of God in everything you are and do. Let that be the motivation for how we treat our neighbor, for how we run into dark places with the gospel, for how we seek to redeem that which Satan thinks is his and it's not his, belongs to God. You are glorified by the Spirit in Christ. And that is glory for us indeed. Thanks for joining. No one has ever loved you like Jesus Christ. I hope you feel that love in every sermon that's preached on this podcast. You can find more sermons, transcripts, study guides at nathanguide.com. Please stay tuned for another lesson and rest in the love of Christ.